The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Sky, we're starting to get folks support us, and we're awfully grateful for it. We are, and we want to give a shout out to Drew and SP for their support. We're certainly not getting rich doing this, but we'd like to break even. So uh, we really appreciate your support, and every dollar matters. Yes, and here's how you can help us. You can go to the oamnetwork.com website slash something to say, and there you'll find a donate button. That is done through Squarespace. If you want to donate through the Cash App, that's dollar sign P-O-D-M-E-M, or on Venmo at P-O-D-M-E-M. And when you donate on Cash App or Venmo, be sure to list something to say as the beneficiary of your gift, and we're awfully grateful for it. Absolutely. Something to T-W-O say. You're listening to Something to Say, a conversation of friends of 40 years who come together now to share reflections about their lives, the work that they've done as clergy, one retired, that's me, and one still going at it every day. That'd be me. There you go. And to um, to have a safe space to talk about things that maybe don't always get talked about by clergy out in the world. So that that's our goal anyway. And I'm Johnny, and I'm grateful that you are listening to us. We are receiving some very favorable responses from folks that are not just family. <laughs> yeah, that's helpful. More but, than the three or four out yeah, there that love us dearly. Yeah, thank you both they for listening. Yeah. That's right. But there's uh, there's been a good response to that, and, and we're thankful for that. And it means so much. We want to hear from you. If you've got some things you want us to talk about, there is a way you can do that. You can go, go to uh, just email us at something, T-W-O, say, pod at gmail. Com. This is our first effort to record in the home studio coming to you from the fourth floor of the Melrose Midtown in Memphis, Tennessee. Our good buddy Gil, who still produces the show, has moved, most assuredly moved from Memphis to Florida, where he is setting up shop with all that he does and relocating his family so before he left, he came over and showed me how to hook up all my equipment. So we'll hope this will be something that still demonstrates some level of quality that if there's a, if there's a problem with the quality, it's not Gil. It's, it's this as we're trying to do this work here and he master it remotely. We're not in a studio. We're actually in my guest bedroom. So what that might mean is you're going to hear maybe a clock. A chime every now and again. I actually have Mocha with me this week, so you might hear her doing what she does. I would not be surprised if you hear a train or you might, you know, whatever it is. We're just not soundproof, but that's okay and we're going to keep going with it. Sky, uh, welcome to folks and tell people what's on your mind today. Well, it's good to be uh, with you folks on the podcast. I made the drive from the Hub City in Jackson down to Memphis today. It's a beautiful spring day after uh, a dogwood winter weekend. 
and I have finally recovered from terrible allergies that uh, got me down pretty bad. So I'm glad to be amongst the living and uh, talking and using my regular voice rather than being a few notes below the staff. You were a sick boy. I was sick. I'm glad to be on the mend. Yeah, that, that, it, it was frightening to hear that voice. Yeah, it's not pretty. <laughs> yeah. To Today, what we want to do is spend some time and think about the impact of COVID on spiritual leaders. COVID's impacted all of us in ways maybe we don't really yet fully realize. Some of us have recovered from COVID. Some of us have lost someone we love from COVID, and that applies to Sky and me. All of the things that COVID has done to impact our living has been difficult. As clergy, spiritual leaders, I've wondered how my colleagues have managed through this season. I myself have not had to deal with any of that since July and I retired. And I've worried not only about the performance of the work of the clergy and their role as spiritual leaders. My primary concern was how was COVID impacting them, impacting you, my sisters and brothers with whom I uh, labored for, for many, many years and I guess I'm still part of the family. Am I still in the family? You're till today. You're not with us anymore. Okay. Well, I'm not sure that that's the case. You're in the retired relationship. I'm in the retired relationship. Um, it's interesting. Some folks thought I've uh, died, but I'm still around. Nope. So the point here is how has it been for you as you lead a congregation in a way that is the antithesis of everything you were trained to do or be? Mm hmm. You've had to do that, Sky. Yeah. And you, you've done your best with what you had. As you look back across the year, not so much the choices necessarily that you've made to lead your church. What did COVID do for, to you, your soul, as you at least considered how you would as a spiritual leader tend to your own stuff? At first, it was a panic. Okay. What do we do? How does, how do we do church? How do we do pastoral care as clergy? How do we justify our living in our paycheck when people are not seeing us and we're not doing the usual thing day to day, week to week, Sunday to Sunday? That led to the fact to realize, well, we're all in this deal together. It's not just clergy. It's teachers. It's folks who are in business and then people whose livelihoods have been terribly affected by that so then it's like well you know i need to quit feeling so sorry for myself because i realize there's some other folks really hurting with this and then the reality like you said we know people who got sick we know people who died or lost loved ones so all that came rapid fire all in a, a an atmosphere of the unknown I don't, I don't fault doctors and scientists for getting it wrong the first time. It's a novel virus, which means we don't point. know anything about it. So, That's a great point. You know, it, it's taken hundreds of years for modern medicine to get where it's at. And I'm going to give folks in the, in the medical and science community a break for not getting it all right the first three months because nobody knew. We didn't know. We still don't know everything that it does. So amidst all the chaos in the unknowns, there were, there were also things that I knew I can control. I can uh, control how I let it affect me. 
I can choose how uh, I can do something about it. I can choose to do self-care uh, rather than wallow in the mess. I picked up my reading. Uh, I watched movies I've missed for a while. Uh, I got over the fact that going to the office eight hours a day and staring at the wall for six of them was not work. It wasn't anything except my own self, uh, my need to do something. So it became an introspective season for a few months. And then it was, I, I miss being in the company of people. Mm-hmm. And I'm an introvert. And for me to say that just reminds me that I may have my preferences, but they're not absolutes. We are designed to be integrated in a community of some kind. Uh, and for Christians, that's a community of faith. But I think for human beings, it's, 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 it's being involved in humanity where you see people with skin and you interact. Uh, you have relationships and, uh, no amount of technology can replace that. And we, we're living in a time where communications are as many avenues of communications as there ever been. But yet we realize in this season, they are still at best substitutes and facsimiles. They're not the real thing. Only recently had the opportunity. Well, I guess it's been maybe a month now since I was vaccinated. Get, get the shot, please. Whichever one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do group therapy every week. And for a year, we did group therapy by Zoom, which wow. is hard and nearly impossible for my therapist to really do within, within the modality that he teaches or, or leads that requires physical presence. Now, the benefit of that was, which waned over time, which was that I could see all my group members' faces at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I liked that. But then I realized I missed being with them. And my pod that I lived with was so insular during the year, taking care of my folks as I do. My greatest fear was that I would take it to them. Right. Unaware. So I, I maintain a very tight group that I was around. And the first day we we're back in our group, in the group room, and we were all in the room together. It felt weird. Mm-hmm. Still masked, of course. I realized in as much as I'd missed it, I wasn't used to it anymore. Mm-mm. And I had to familiarize myself again with what it feels like to be energetically in the presence of other people. And that, I think, is a learning curve for a whole lot of us as yeah. society begins to reintegrate. We're not used to being around each other anymore. What does it even feel like? I I just, we all took note of that. And the more that we're together, the, the more normal it feels. Mm -hmm. So it it is something that returns. Have you had anything like that? Yes. That's almost deja vu. The first Sunday we had a church service. Uh, it was, it was wonderful. And it was also like, wow, I almost forgot how to do this. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and then it got better. Uh, but there, there's still, you know, a, a fist bump. Uh, I mean, some folks are huggers and I'm sure they feel constrained. Yeah. And one of our older church members, she, a dear, dear woman, 
And, and she said, you know, when all this passes, we just need to have a worship service or a time together where we can just hug each other. And she wasn't trying to be anything other than real because she missed, she misses human touch and people and conversations and all the things that we've taken for granted. I think we realize how important they are and evidently how essential they are to who we are. Yeah, it, it defines us in ways that we maybe never understood previously and maybe never had words for and may not even have words for now. But on a feeling level, it's, it is absolutely, mm-hmm. and, and it's surely hardwired into who we are. But there's something more about biology here. There's, there's yeah. this spiritual, blessed be the tie that binds, right? I, I think, I think that's spot on. Uh, it, it is hard. I guess the, an analogy <laughs> would be is when you go to the funeral home and you visit with the family who's lost a loved one. Sometimes you don't have to say anything, but that presence says everything and no words are necessary. Can I describe that? No. Can I, can I scientifically validate it? No, but I know something happens. The ministry of presence is no small thing and is the primary means by which we show care. That would be Dr. Liston Mills. Yep. uh, From uh, the, the late. Dr. Lister Mills from Vanderbilt Divinity School. We've got a guest today, although for you, it is pretty much the guy next door. <laughs> Literally the guy next door, next to me in my office. We wanted to share some insights for folks around what, what COVID has done to one's life, to one's work. Uh, Eddie Bromley is one of the clergy at the First United Methodist Church in Jackson, Tennessee, Someone I've known a long time. I, we went to England together long ago. Well, you sure did. With uh, you, with your dad, and me, with mine. And there might be a story or two. At to least. Be yes, sir. About that as well. Yes, sir. So uh, after this break, we will welcome Eddie to Something to Say. You're listening to Something to Say on the OAM Network. Power to the podcast. You can reach out to Something to Say on Instagram at SomethingTWOSayPod or email us at SomethingTWOSayPod at gmail.com. Let us hear from you. We're honored to welcome Eddie Bromley into the conversation where we invite him to reflect with us about what it's been like as a spiritual leader through these COVID times to help others in their spiritual journey, while at the same time seeking to tend to the matters of one's own spirit. Has it been a challenge? What have, what have you leaned on? And Well, uh, it's been nice to have a colleague that I you know get to see every day because, uh, you know, it's funny, be, you know, the connection, uh, you know, I've Sky's about the only Methodist preacher I've seen in in the last year. <laughs> not that that's completely bad, but uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. the nice thing is I, I've not been as isolated as as some you know some of our colleagues, some of our friends. I, I I still think it's been probably pretty important for leaders to admit their own mental frailty in all of this. You know, when you're supposed to be being strong for everybody else, but you're also having 
struggles with anxiety and depression and, you know, doubt, all of that, you know, really staying in touch with that and being honest about it. You know, it's so strange. On one hand, people need you to be constant, strong, whatever. They also don't need you to be inauthentic. So they also don't need you to be fake and, uh, you know, out of touch with your own humanity. You know, so it's been really nice when I've talked to people and they've said, uh, you know, they've been anxious or sad or whatever to be able to be honest and say, yeah, had some of that too. So sometimes big doses. On this side of things now that vaccinations are where we are closer, you know, depending on whatever happens in the future with that. But the anticipation is gathering and you guys were, you thought you guys have been back in the sanctuary a couple of times, right? And then you had to shut down. Let's see. We started in the late fall. September, is that right? Yes, that's right. And then we shut down right when Advent started. <laughs> Coming, we're shutting down. Yeah, I, I mean that's that that was really that was incredibly frustrating. And then we were down until about wow, Lent, uh, maybe Lent. Yeah, that's about right. And and only only worship for a while and then slowly some Sunday school classes started meeting here or there, but a lot of the small groups got adept at zoom mm-hmm. uh, and, and they needed that connection. And I, mm-hmm. I think you could tell some groups were yearning for a lot more. And as more folks got vaccinated, they realized this was a little more doable. Now, some folks met outside. Uh, one of our larger classes uh, met outside. They socially distanced from each other uh, Eddie and I both went. We just felt like it was important for both of us to be there. And we could tell that people needed to see another human being besides the ones in their house. Yeah. Eddie, you're sharing about your own admissions of your own struggles through this and being able to be authentic with your people about that as the occasion arose. Did you have any fear or trepidation about sharing in a vulnerable way with people or was it something that felt right, natural to do? I, I think probably 10 years ago, it wouldn't have felt very natural. But, um, you know, one of the things to, uh, for those that, that don't know, my wife practices medicine. And one of the things that she and I have both tried to do is be honest about our own struggles and about, you know, we're, we're not trying to use either our parishioners or patients as a cheap psychiatrist. At the same time, when people you're caring for know that you're also human and that you know some of their needs from the inside out. It helps them to drop their guard some. And so we've just decided that instead of trying to you know, make people impressed with us, we're, we're just trying to connect with people on a human level. And, and, you know, some people don't want their medical provider or their pastor to be human. They need them to be something else. For those folks, I've just decided in advance, it, it, the cost of playing that game is just too high both for the person playing it and for the person that that wants it played. So, you know, honestly, when you tell people that you hurt, that you struggle, uh, there's some people that do not want to hear that, but I find them to be in the minority. And and I've I've really decided that for folks like that, I'm not sure how to meet what, what it is that they think they need. Because I'm not sure that they yet know what they need and, and, and that the way they're trying to find it is not real healthy. I think it's a, a, a lot better match if, uh, if you know the people in helping professions are human beings too and that, uh, they, they aren't, you know, they aren't coming down from a mountain in, in some kind of godlike way. 
that come down from the mountain that they're they're uh, they're coming down like Moses. A lot less impressive when you get up close to him than than you had thought he would be. Mm-hmm. I wonder too that part of what's driving whatever this next phase of my life is, which is still to be determined. The sense that I mean, I lived decades in silence around things that I wore as a badge of honor, how much I could carry at one time. But then there comes a point in which one more thing is one thing too many and it's crushing. But for a couple of colleagues, I didn't really say much about that to anybody. Do you sense that the fellowship of the clergy has been able to be honest with each other about the struggles? Have you felt any inhibitions about sharing your struggle with someone who might be your superintendent one day, or have you even has that even been a thing? Sure, I, I, I would say that uh, that I found the fellowship of the clergy is sometimes healthy and sometimes uh, able to be a real human community, and sometimes it's not. And I think the, the choice that we have to make, like in advance, is knowing that there is a real risk in being authentic. I mean, like when you tell people the truth about who you really are on the inside, there's a real chance that you'll be rejected or that it'll be used against you. But I think the risk, if you don't do that, is, is a lot higher. I think the isolation, the burnout, the as you say, the load that that you carry when 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 you don't let people on the inside is a higher risk. But you know, I think that's the risk of relationship, right? Is that uh, not everybody proves trustworthy? Not everybody proves able? Not everybody proves willing? I mean, sometimes you you know you pour out your whole heart, somebody just takes a step over it yeah. or takes a step up. And that's the hard thing. I think it's always scary to be authentic. I think every single time you do it, because, well, we're fickle, right? I mean, you know, uh, I'd like to say that it's all about other people being fickle, but I've been fickle. Sometimes I've, you know, sometimes I've given people what they've needed. And sometimes I've been pompous ass. So, I mean, you know, uh, and others do that too, right? I mean, they do. Man. Scott, have you ever been a pompous ass? Oh, more times than I can count. What do you mean? I think. I said that facetiously. I know you did. I knew the answer. I, I, of course you knew the answer, and Eddie knows the answer, too. I think when when Eddie talked about having a colleague and we're next door to each other, literally in our office, I think sometimes we modeled that in our own debriefing every day because there for a while we would sit for an hour and just say, what's going on? Sometimes it was fluff and sometimes it was really deep, but I think that gave us some practice and some confidence so that when we met with others and we met with staff, we could model what we're feeling. And so they had a template to follow. Mm-hmm. Say, uh, it's okay to say these things because uh, you're thinking them and maybe expressing them outwardly and uh, publicly lets others know that uh, this is real. To pretend like uh, it's not runs into what Eddie says. Uh, it's damaging. Right. It, uh, it's damaging and, and, uh, some of it, uh, self inflicted. Yeah. Which is not healthy at all. Well, I've wondered about you all, you, not just you two, but those of you who lead, you know, I've, I've finished 33 years sequestered. And the truth is, I had no energy to imagine 
how to do ministry. I just needed to get the hell out. I was done. I acknowledge that. But I wonder, and I've thought about those who have started appointments this year. How in the world do you pastor a people you can't see or touch when mm-hmm. the sum of what I've understood pastoral ministry to be and what I think is at least at the core of being a Wesleyan is proximity, right? I mean, yeah. it's and we, and we have technology that that's given us a Band-Aid, but it is not the fix. It's not the fix, but it, and, and in the beginning, even though we had the technology, we weren't quite sure what to do with it. And we, Eddie and I, were blessed enough to have a communication professional who said, if you're going to be in somebody's living room, you got to act like you're there with them and you've mm-hmm. got to look at them and your facial expressions matter. I like to have a few notes around. That's hard to do when you're doing that. So we learned how to use a teleprompter and we learned how to get notes in our heads so we wouldn't have to be hemming and hawing. And so that helped us get the illusion that there was some kind of relationship, some kind of conversation going on with me and whoever was on the other side of the screen. And while that was helpful, I think after a couple of months, I, and I think Eddie and I talked about this, it, it, it's tough because it's not, it's not real. It's literally, it's a virtual. Mm-hmm. You don't see those other folks. You don't interact with them. You don't see skin. You don't see body language and all those things. In this season, I think we have taken so for granted. We realize how essential they are uh, in community of faith and in the fellowship. And that's, there's no, I don't think there's a substitute for fellowship. No. What are your thoughts on that, Eddie? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think our culture is already trying to understand what what all this new technology does. And so I have 1,600 friends on Facebook. Now, that's a misnomer, right? But but that's a misnomer because all that we know about human relationships and so forth, you can't maintain more than about, about 100 relationships. You can have all kinds of associations and loose connections and other things, but all 1,600 people on my Facebook, do I know who they are emotionally? Do you have a deep understanding of what's happening in their lives? Do they re- or are we just mutual voyeurs, uh, you know, just sort of peeking at each other? Uh, that's really not the same thing. You know, an audience is not a friend. Uh, you know, a voyeur is not a friend. An exhibitionist is not a friend. There may be other things. You know, we have associations with people. But that's still not even the same thing as friend. I, I may be, for example, I may be in the Rotary Club and by association, I have some connection with all the other, you know, Rotarians throughout the world. Or I may, you know, be United Methodist clergy and, and in some loose sense, I'm, you know, I have a fellowship with every other clergy of the United Methodist stripe. But I, I, am I really friends with that many people? And the answer is really no. And and the problem that we haven't yet adapted to is that we can have 1400 friends or 1600 friends on Facebook and still be completely isolated mm-hmm. and still be completely lonely and, and still have not a, not a soul who really understands us or, you know, or, or not one of them be somebody that we understand. And so while I'm thankful for the technology, I, I thought about what it would have been like to have been a pastor, say, in 1917 when the Spanish flu was happening. Boy, uh, that would have been very different. 
situation. I'm thankful for technology. It can create a false sense of intimacy that isn't real. And it can create a, a, a false sense of fellowship that isn't real. And that's, uh, you know, when I hear people say, well, I, you know, I go to church on my television. <laughs> you, you may watch preaching, you might watch singing, you might watch, uh, you know, even something inspirational and helpful, but you're not going to church, not participating in community of faith. Yeah. You're watching religious entertainment, which may or may not be quality. It may be super quality, but it's still not the same thing as being in fellowship. I want to try something because what you both have said gave rise to one of the ways I tried to deal with this while I was still active. And I know that you guys purposely did not do this. So I want, I want to talk about zoom communion for a minute. I'm, and I'm, I'm happy to have that conversation. I'm not, I'm not trying to have a theological fight at all. Oh, this would be fun. Yeah. Anyway, it won't offend anybody. Yeah. And you know, I can cut this to make you say whatever I want you to say. <laughs> <Eddie>. So, <laughs> Right. <laughs> editorial license. No, you know, uh, we're just cash here at the Melrose Midtowns. So and when you hear it, this is iced tea, people. Trust me. You're in your place. You can drink whatever you want to drink. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, I, I served a church that I had the benefit over two tours of duty to serve 14 years. And I worked within the first tour of duty to increase the regularity of Eucharist in the primary service of word and table. So while I was there the first time we moved from once a month to twice a month, first and third Sundays, we were going to celebrate communion. And that as a juxtaposed to the previous understanding is that there would be a gathering of the few people who feel really important that communion is important and will gather in the chapel at 830. And that happened for years. And I don't negate the import of that. For me, my understanding was that word and table is the primary expression of common worship among people called Methodists. I take Mr. Wesley at his word about the duty of constant communion. Not just the act, but all that. If you're, if you're seeking to live the sacramental life, we have to have the touchstone of the sacrament to drive us into living that life. That's, that's, I, I'm not, that's the kind of ground floor for me. So when I came back, we had this table commissioned at St. John's, which is a gorgeous piece of art. That was the time in my, and, and, and congregants brought it to me. I wasn't sure whether or not to go for it, but congregants brought it to me. It's like, now's the time to go to weekly. I'm like, okay, let's do it. And so for my last five years, five and a half years of being at St. John's of the last six, uh, we communed weekly. Not everybody loved it. There's a ritualization that it, it, it becomes part of who you are, that you just do it and you do it. And so for that practice, that mattered a lot to the understanding of a congregation to be completely shut off. What I heard from my former congregation, the people that really valued that, and it was a lot, 
and a lot of families with children, teaching their children about weekly communion, it was huge. What do we do? You know, my first thought when COVID hit is like, well, shit, there goes intinction. That's never going to come back, you know. Yep. If we didn't think our hands were nasty before, we know they're That's nasty That's right. Now. Th- that was the primary expression mode that we used. And again, my people came to me, and what do we do? And there was something that I lived with not doing it for a few weeks, and I feel like there's something that the bishop sent out that basically gave some license to be creative. Yeah. And how you— he did do your work, and because Eucharist was a part of the weekly life of that church, how do I do that? I readily concede everything that I've ever known, been taught, or taught about the Eucharist is challenged in the decision to do that. There's there's a core of people who. And, and not just, you know, individual screens, an individual screen with a family in it participating in this. And I said, this is not a replacement. And when this is all over, this is not the way we do it. But for a time such as this, I, I can't starve you of sacrament if it's a part of your weekly spiritual life. That may well be the last theological stand I made before I retired. I'm not sure I want that to be the one that's the signatory of my whole career, but it did feel like it had some integrity in how we arrived at that decision. That's the backstory for me of, you know, I I wasn't just winging it. What did y'all come up with as you were wondering, how do we pastor a people grounded in sacrament? Baptism being what it is, but at the time, nobody was around anybody. We were, we were utterly sequestered. Surely you had these conversations and you came to a place that you felt had integrity for y'all. In my office, I guess, wasn't it, Eddie? Yeah. Yeah. We did no baptisms, put some of them off. We put confirmation off. We waited till we knew we could be, we could do those things at a time when people could be present. Mm -hmm. We really wrestled with the Eucharistic problem. And it was a problem because it is part of, spiritual diet of folks. So we went on tradition side about, you know, the body being present and our physical bodies being present, but it hurt. It really did. Yeah. One of the things we did, and this was uh, shortly after COVID um, first worship down is that we talked about the sacrament on the very, the very first broadcast that we did. And what we talked about is we, we said if, uh, if we had been worshiping in person that Sunday, we would have broken bread together. And what we talked about, Sky, if you remember, we, we talked about how in the Gospel of John, John doesn't directly speak about the sacrament, but it speaks in a sacramental way. So you have, for example, you have the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 in the then tells them that they that they must drink uh, eat of his flesh and drink of his blood, and you have some other things that that hint at the sacramental idea. And what we talked about is how in the Eastern Church, while there are sacraments or record, you know, uh, recognized sacraments, there's also a sacramental view about how 
life is is intersected by the sacraments. And so what we talked about is we invited folks uh, at whatever table they were eating, whether it was by themselves or with a spouse or a loved one of some, uh, to invite Christ to be present and allow it to be a sacramental moment. And we we try to explain that that's not that's not the same as partaking in communion together. And yet ordinary moments have the ability to be sacramental in nature, which is a distinction with a difference. For instance, the the Eastern Orthodox uh, at Epiphany, a a lot of Eastern Orthodox will uh, swim in rivers and other kinds of things. They'll recognize how baptism has begun to make all water sacred. And that isn't to say that they're, you know, that they're, when they're jumping in the river, they're having a very big baptism. They're not saying that at all. They're, but they're saying that what the sacrament does is it reminds us how God is redeeming even the physical order. That is not the same thing as, as displacing or replacing the need for, you know, what happens at baptism or what happens at the common table. But it is a recognition that that part of that grace carries over into ordinary things, mm-hmm. and uh, and which is why I think why I think you know Wesley and and the ancient church uh, especially felt uh, a need to make word and table always go together. Otherwise, there's a tendency that that we become Gnostics. We we become you know that that everything about our faith becomes locked up inside of our head, you know, and what the sacraments do is it, is it keeps us from, from escaping into this enclosed place where, where the faith is just about what I know and what I experience that, that the faith is uh, something that invades my total life and claims my total life. And it pulls me out of myself. And I think, so while we did not set a table, we did not do uh, a, a virtual communion, we we tried to help people remember what the sacraments say about, about life. And uh, and we, we recognized that we were entering an extraordinary period where there would probably be some deep difficulties in recognizing God's presence. You know, when, when, you know, what, what, as a whole country for what, eight, 10 weeks, we didn't go to work, we didn't go to school, we didn't go to anywhere to try to figure out where is God in all of that. We knew that it was going to be very difficult for all of us. And so we tried to remind folks that God was going to be present in some very, very ordinary kinds of ways. Yeah. And I think um, it, it may have been me or maybe you or both of us in sermons talked about how things are sacramental. And at one time, there were almost a hundred sacraments in the church. And then Rome whittled it down to seven. And then the Protestants whittled it down to two or three more. But that was, that was kind of the environment we we're trying to create. Now we did relent around Christmas and we celebrated a Eucharist at the church with a small group of people. And then we took it uh, out to those who could not be present. So we stretched because of space, because of uh, social distancing. You could right. Live. So we had had uh, put together where folks could pick it up at the church and distribute it, and some and it was around Christmas, Christmas Eve. Yeah. 
in a liturgy. Did you feel did you feel some pressure to do that, or was it within you that we need to offer something in this season? It wasn't pressure as much as it was just genuine. We miss this. Yeah. So nobody said they were going to get mad and throw a fit if we didn't do it, but they were just simply saying we miss this and we need this. And it wasn't. I didn't feel any pressure as much as I could hear the genuine yearning about it. And that was kind of a brainstorm in a staff meeting. How can we do this best? That, that was a great idea. And it was, uh, well, we ran out and we had prepared what 550, I think mm-hmm. 550 and, and we ran out. We were getting really creative there toward yeah. the end. Well, there's something about people were hungry. Yeah. That, that what I assume was your takeaway. Yeah. And you shouldn't have been surprised, right? Because of all that the, the tradition of that congregation and, and knowing the two of you as I do and your teaching. Um, it was, it was tough. I mean, to, to talk about how do we do this and then realize maybe we don't do it. Maybe we in this season, the word liminal has been used so much. I'm almost tired of using it, but it's really, it, I'd say it's been really more surreal. What does it mean? Well, you know, Threshold, whatever that means. I mean, I, I didn't think as much of a threshold as it was. Somebody slammed a door when I was halfway through it. So, I mean, Somebody it's more read than that, that in the book and thought we all needed to hear yeah, it. Yeah. I lot. mean, but you know, it, it was painful and it was surreal. And you know, how do you do this in this season? And we didn't have a good answer. And so we muddled through it and people were patient. But at the same time, when we saw an opportunity like we did for Christmas Eve, said, we, we can do this. In fact, we've got to do this. You know, I appreciate and am not in any way surprised the two of you would live with and be informed by the tradition of the church. I value that in both of you. I've always, always have. I've always respected that. I, I care for that as well. And I was not without some consideration of that in my own discernment. I had a congregation that I was just trying to keep alive. Oh, gosh. And, and, but even before COVID, I was just trying to keep alive through whatever changes were coming. Yeah. Or, and still are. And nobody gets any critique from me. And I think that's one of the things that Eddie and I would say in our debriefings that I'm not going to be critical of one colleague because there, there is no playbook for this. No, you can read Luther's letter about what to do in pandemic and you can say, well, that, that was one way to deal with it, but it was not prescriptive. It was just showed he was wrestling just as much as we were wrestling with ours. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, when we, when we go back and look at some of our mothers, fathers, the faith, when we look at places and times where, where, where the circumstances were extraordinary, really what we see them doing is improvising in the faith. And, and, and you know, all three of us at least have some musical background. I think all of us, all three of us would claim to be musicians of one stripe or another. But, you know, you, you practice the scales, but the scales are not music. You practice the scales so that uh, so that you can do music. You know, I think all of us have been thrown in places sometimes where we weren't exactly sure what the next note need to be, but you got to play a note, and it might be the wrong one. And difference between a, an amateur and a really good musician is even if uh, you know the, the good musician, even if he or she hits the wrong note, they keep playing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the 
the, the beginner uh, hits the wrong note and gets so freaked out by hitting the wrong note that they just stop. Uh, when I was first learning to play, one of uh, our musicians who had been playing for decades just said, I'll know you're a musician when you keep playing after you've hit a wrong note. <laughs> and, uh, right. you know, so we, uh, so, you know, we've been improvising and, um, and I think, you know, I think part of what, what a lot of us don't want to face is that life doesn't really give us ideal circumstances in which the textbook answer always works. In fact, textbook answer almost never works. It's just an approximation. And what we're really always faced with is a range of choices that may range from slightly unsatisfactory to, you know, completely disastrous. And we have to choose in, the, in that range. Right. Well, our first go with Eddie has run long, and we've decided to make it a two-parter. So next time, we will pick up where we left off with Eddie around how we attempt to do church and be church during a pandemic, the impact of COVID upon our lives, upon our spirits. And then we three, Eddie, Sky, and I reflect upon the loss of our friend David clergy who succumbed to COVID just a few days ago. So thank you for listening. Stay in touch with us and we will see you next time on Something to Say. Shalom. Something to Say is an OAM Network podcast hosted by Johnny and Sky, produced by Gil Worth, logo and design by the OAM Network. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and Amazon. For more information, go to theoamnetwork.com. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. Theoamnetwork.com. Power to the podcast.